In this episode of the Cato Podcast, I have asked a group of people to sit down with me in person and discuss AB48 and AB481. As a disclaimer, none of these people work for the legislature in California. None of them are attorneys. So, to tell you who's in the room with us tonight, uh, immediately to my left, I have the infamous Kenny Brayton, Cato board member and member of the team leader and SWAT commander cadre. Kenny, thanks for being here. Immediately beside him, I have Adam, who is our demonstration response chair, and he is in current uh, development of a uh, demonstration concepts class where uh, we'll kind of talk about principles that can guide our decisions in managing demonstrations. And uh, beside him, we have our after action chair for Cato, uh, Travis Norton, and uh, lastly, joining us is Chris Jenny, also part of our uh, team leader cadre, as well as a recently appointed board member uh, for Cato. So, gentlemen, thanks for being here tonight. We're going to talk a little bit in the beginning about AB48. Now, AB48 requires a few things. Each law enforcement agency shall monthly furnish to the Department of Justice in a manner defined and prescribed by the Attorney General a report of all instances when a peace officer employed by that agency is involved in any of the following. An incident involving the shooting of a civilian by a peace officer. An incident involving the shooting of a peace officer by a civilian. An incident in which the use of force by a peace officer against a civilian results in serious bodily injury or death. An incident in which use of force by a civilian against a peace officer results in serious bodily injury or death. For each incident reported, the information reported DOSA shall include, but not limited to, all of the following. Gender, race, age of each individual who was shot, injured, or killed, date, time, location, civilian was armed, if so, what kind of weapon, type of force used against the officer, civilian, or both, including types of weapons, number of officers involved, number of civilians involved, a brief description. And then one of the big things is what serious bodily injury means. Involves a substantial risk of death, unconsciousness, protracted and obvious disfigurement, or protracted loss or impairment of the function of a bodily member or organ. Then we go into A and B, which is probably going to be the focus of tonight's discussion. Except as otherwise provided, kinetic energy projectiles and chemical agents shall not be used by any law enforcement agency to disperse any assembly, protest, or demonstration. And more importantly, subsection B, kinetically energy projectiles and chemical agents shall only be deployed by a peace officer that has received training on their proper use by the commission of peace officer standards and training for crowd control if the use is objectively reasonable to defend against a threat to life or serious bodily injury to any individual including any peace officer or to bring an objectively dangerous and unlawful situation safely and effectively under control and only in accordance with all of the following requirements and then it goes on to talk about de-escalation what objective reasonableness is etc cetera, etc cetera, and what a connective kinetic energy projectile is rather than bore you with continually reading it i would encourage all of you that are responsible for these kind of responses to read 
uh, AB48 and the sections. So starting from there, um, I'm looking at the room here and uh, everyone's blood pressure has now gone up. And one of the key things it talks about is monthly reporting. Who has a thought on monthly reporting and what that's supposed to look like? So obviously, Marcus, monthly reporting is going to be it's going to be very context dependent on what kind of agency or how large the agency is that you work for. Those who work at large agencies are going to have a lot more of these things to report. I think the one thing that I would encourage everyone to focus on here is how the legislators are defining what serious bodily injury is. And I think one of the things that I've taken away from, because I don't know about everybody else, but over the last year, the legislators have really started to hammer us with all of these laws and these different things that we have. And the thing that I have tried to focus on is the terminology. We say something like, what's a protest? What's a demonstration? What's serious bodily injury? And we really have to do a good job of understanding that terminology. And so serious bodily injury, how do we report that? is going to depend on how the legislators have defined that for us. I think when we start getting past that piece and just pay attention when you start talking about legislation, the legislators will try and pack things into that law that you're not really expecting. And so it, I would really encourage everyone to, to, to really read every single line as boring as it is to understand what we're responsible for now. That's really all I have on, on the first part, Marcus. I can, I can talk about the second there, but Adam, I'll let you go ahead. Yeah. And, and we talk about GBI and there's actually an, another component of 48 that GBI doesn't apply to. And it's just the actual use of kinetic energy weapons or uh, chemical agents for crowd control period. And that's 13652.1a, where it says each law enforcement agency shall within 60 days of each incident published a summary on its internet website of all instances where a peace officer employed by the agency uses a kinetic energy projectile or chemical agent, as those terms are defined in this section, for crowd control. So anytime we use munitions as defined in this section, we have to do a report within 60 days. That period may be extended for 30 days if there's just cause, but in no case longer than 90 days from the time of the incident. So it's important to understand that this reporting requirement that's going to be made public um, certainly exists. So if you have an incident where you use pepper ball, where you use beanbag, where you use 40 millimeter, any type of gas, um, under this new legislation, you're required to put a summary of that on your website, regardless if anybody was injured or impacted. It's just the, the, the deployment is the trigger for that. Yeah. And I would, I would say, just so we're clear for everybody, we're talking about during crowd control situations where that stuff has to be reported, right? Correct. So specific to crowd control situations, which we've seen quite a bit of, we have to do a report on that. And that's separate from the GBI requirement that's also in this section. Yeah. And another thing I know, Adam, you and I have talked about this is, you know, we're not supposed to use these impact munitions or chemical agents to disperse any assembly protest or demonstration. And one of the things you and I have talked about is how, well, we've never done that in the first place. Now, are there some agencies over the past year that you and I have discussed that have, are the reason for this legislation coming down? Yeah. 
we've had indiscriminate deployments of impact munitions. We've had, I mean, you can look at, there's, there's video and it's not California related, but it's, you know, Fort Lauderdale where they were deploying chemical agents and impact munitions. And it was just, it looks horrible. It is horrible. And we wonder why these legislators are coming down with these laws on us. Well, that's the reason for those agencies and, and you and I are very careful about this, where we're talking about, we're not using impact munitions to disperse an assembly or a protest or a demonstration. It's only when it becomes riotous. And so I would really caution everybody that the way these terms have been and what Adam calls hijacked by our detractors by the media and even by our own officers who don't understand any better, you really have to guard against that, I think. And, you know, you bring up a great point. And this is something we had a conversation with um, some journalists about uh, the discussion of terms and, and things along these lines. And we, and we talk about how a lot of these laws are couched in this phrase, First Amendment protected activity, protests, demonstrations, things that are considered lawful under the First Amendment, right? Peaceably assemble is, is the wording. Um, that doesn't necessarily apply to rout, to riot, to unlawful assembly, or to independent criminal acts that take place during these events, like an assault with a deadly weapon, batter at an officer, arson, things like this. So it's important as we go through the details of these sections that the, the details, the words, they matter. And I think in looking at this, the legislature had a certain intention, and I don't know if enough care was taken. It's probably going to lead to some litigation, which is going to lead to case law, which is probably going to provide a little more clarity for better or for worse down the line. These are these are definitions that we need to know about what what is a riot, right? And what what are those behaviors and define them? And we saw a couple times where people were declaring unlawful assemblies, but if you really examined them, they they weren't necessarily unlawful. And that's our fault as a profession for not training our people, not really defining them, not having clear uh, an end state, a clear objectives. And that's been inconsistently applied throughout the country. Yeah. And, and Marcus, you make a great point. And, and we were talking about this before with this terminology. If you go to that post document that we that we pulled up and uh, on, on crowd management intervention controls, control strategies. If you go to page 53 of that document, you can Google it, it'll come right up. It actually defines for us what's a lawful assembly, what's isolated unlawful behavior, what's an unlawful assembly, and what's a riot. And I, I think one of the things that we need to talk about is the fact that we employed these impact munitions during what some consider a peaceful protest because we had one or two actors inside that peaceful protest who were doing riotous acts. They were tossing frozen water bottles, rocks, missiles, whatever that was. And when a grenadier on a line targeted that person, and there's an example out of LA County of this, they employed that impact munition inside that densely packed area, right? Density increases I've said this before, the complexity of our problem, the more people, the more cars, the more buildings, it, you know, we have to make so many more decisions, but then we employ that impact munition in that set of circumstances, it strikes the intended target, but anybody here who has deployed a 40 millimeter before knows that blue tip is going to do what once it hits 
whatever it hits. It's going to bounce off and it's going to do something else. And in this set of circumstances, it striked a reporter in the throat, turned into this big problem. So back to what we were saying before, I would really encourage everybody to look at that document and see how Post is now defining these protests, riots, and all these different things. Well, and it's a big part of it is thinking ahead of the problem, right? Begin with the end in mind. So it may seem like a good idea to impact somebody in a crowd, but what does success look like in this scenario? If somebody's truly a threat, that may be the correct decision. But if we're just trying to change someone's behavior and they may not really be a threat, even though it may be within our procedures, it may be for the long game, better to deal with that person in another way, whether it's sending an arrest team, picking them off when they leave the area, or when they become you know, not a part of a denser problem. And that all factors into judgment, factors into training and these discussions ahead of time. Yeah, I think what you're talking about is sticking to the basic law enforcement strategy, which is preventing the loss of life and seeking a peaceful or at least forceful resolution to the problem that we're facing. Uh, we must minimize the risk to uninvolved or innocent parties. Uh, we need to conform to our laws and agency policies, and we should conform to our community expectations. Well, and you know, that's a great point. And the, it's important to understand, and I know this is covered in tactical science, but you know, stress impedes decision-making and it's offset oftentimes by training and forethought and pre-planning. So if we haven't tra trained on demonstration, route, riot, and how we're going to use the tools at our disposal, we don't have that immediate recall when we're faced with a problem in front of us. We're trying to figure it out as we go and that's where things become problematic, especially with people who don't train on these weapons platforms regularly or who may not be intimately familiar with their policies and procedures and the latest case law, which is where we find ourselves getting into trouble. But I think when we're looking at this new legislative mandate, it's important to understand there are some really important provisions and part of it is best practice and part of it is really putting some restrictions on law enforcement based upon some really unfortunate incidents that have made their way into the media. And I think it's probably worth discussing those provisions under this new section. Um, the first one is de-escalation techniques or other alternatives to force have been attempted when objectively reasonable and have failed. Again, the key phrase is objectively reasonable. The second one is repeated audible announcements are made announcing the intent to use kinetic energy projectiles and chemical agents and the type to be used when objectively reasonable to do so. The announcement shall be made from various locations if necessary and delivered in multiple languages. Again, the best practice, because if you've got a bunch of normal everyday people who are engaged in this protest, but you have to engage someone with a rock, a bottle, a weapon, you want those people to leave, right? You're going to reduce that density. So this is basically saying, unless it's objectively unreasonable to do it, this should be exercised. Uh, the third is persons are given an objectively reasonable opportunity to leave, just like we were talking about in the last section. An objectively reasonable effort has been made to identify people engaged in violent acts and those who are not, and kinetic energy projectiles where chemical agents are targeted towards those individuals engaged in violent acts. Again, we shouldn't be impacting people who are collateral, whether those be legal observers or media or just people who happen to be there. Um, none of this stuff should seem foreign to anybody who practices crowd dynamics or, or crowd management. But we see, we use ourselves as the example if we are more familiar with these concepts. There are people who the first time they learned mobile field force was in the middle of a riot May of last year, or maybe, you know, post Ferguson. So, you know, these are such high consequence events. We need to be brilliant in the basics. So a, a great example I learned during 
our protest response was, we have spent years pounding into the head of patrol people to use non-lethal technology, right? And in my agency, we now have 40 millimeters in every single patrol car. Everyone's been trained and to recognize, hey, here's an opportunity to deploy multiple non-lethal or less lethal technologies, such as the taser, the, the 40 millimeter foam round and all that. <clears throat> well, we have demonstrations and protests in our town, but they're very rarely violent and rise to the level of a full department response. So we had a full department response and what happened? Every single person in a patrol car brought their 40 millimeter because it is a perfect opportunity to use less lethal weapons. And we had to stop and go, hey, no, that's not what we're gonna do. But that's a training scar, right? Because we said, hey, this is a non-lethal misdemeanor. It's non-violent be prepared to use non-lethal force and then as they start throwing bottles and stuff their reaction was hey i can meet this force with and a patrol call would be reasonable for them to act in on on their own and and we stopped that and we controlled that and now because we struggled with that as a profession across the state we now have legislation that requires that it be controlled one, one of the things that I've brought up before when I've talked about this is the fact that all of our impact munition training, I mean, what do we get at the initial outset? It's a two-hour class where you employ a couple rounds on a static range with during the daylight. And where are we employing these impact munitions? It's at night because most of our riots happen. If you look at, if you study any of this stuff or you've been involved in it, you know that most of these riots, they're assembling at night and they're doing their nonsense then. When have we trained under those circumstances? We should not be surprised that we're seeing all of these problems. The, the bottom line is so many of our issues that we see right now can be traced back to a training problem. And that's why, you know, I'm glad to see that Adam's working on a course that will fulfill section B of 13652 that talks about how do we employ impact munitions during a riotous situation? How do we deal with the density issue? How do we do that? Well, and it's not just that, but again, I think people are finding themselves frustrated by A, the legislation and B, some of the fallout from what we've been dealing with over the last five, six years. And the point that you make is I think more salient than you realize where we train to use these kind of tools, speaking kinetic energy projectiles, for somebody armed with a knife, your barricade suspect, your person who's, you know, you're 5150 with a knife on a park bench, like the stuff that you can imagine, the scenarios that we go through on a daily basis, which is entirely different than dealing with the crowd, which is entirely different than using dispersal techniques, right? Which is a, a very limited application because most of our protest demonstrations, they're peaceful. They may get loud, they may get rowdy, but very seldom they get violent. When they get violent, they attract the attention of the state, the nation, sometimes the world, because they're spectacular, right? They're, they're full of drama. And if you overreact, you're getting criticized. You underreact, you get criticized. There's always going to be a fallout the next day. Very seldom do we train as a whole profession what using uh, chemical agents and munitions should look like in, in a situation like this, we just don't train mobile field force in this way at any kind of uh, large scale, right? There's nothing standardized where we can expect, hey, if we call 
CHP, if we call LAPD, if we call our sheriff's department, if we call San Francisco, how, what's the standard response to this? Because everybody has their own way of training and everybody's protocol is different. One agency doesn't use beanbag. One agency exclusively uses beanbag. One agency uses aerial flashbangs. Another agency won't use flashbangs at all. And that creates, especially in a mutual aid component, which most agencies can't handle these kind of riotous situations on their own. They call for mutual aid. You get this grab bag, even on a regional response. You get a grab bag of, hey, what can you guys do? What can't you do? And that creates some real operational challenges if you're an incident commander or an operations section chief because you don't know what you're getting until it shows up. And now you're trying to put the round peg in the round hole on the fly, right? The preparation there really isn't any because you're figuring out, okay, this platoon showed up. What kind of munitions capability that you ha- do you have? And oh. then that creates its own issues. And one of the things that I've, that I've encouraged, you know, our, our county, or at least my mobile field force to do is something that we did with SWAT, which is we all know what we have and what we don't have. What team, you know, hey, county team, what do you have as far as robots go? Okay, we don't have that. So that's what you bring to the fight. Hey, you guys have this equipment. That's what you bring. I would encourage all of your, if you have them, your your mobile field forces to understand what munitions they have that they can bring and what they will be showing up with. Because you're right. If I show up at a staging area, I need to be telling someone Hey, this is what we do. This, but you should know that stuff beforehand. This is not the time to be finding out that hey, we deploy flashbangs and you don't. That goes into that pre-plan piece that we all know we do a horrible job of. We don't do any of that, and it's and we wonder why. And then we wonder why we're getting this legislation shoved down our throats. Well, and that's what I think you're seeing with this legislation is that it's non-law enforcement folks who have a responsibility to the public and the community or elected officials are, are trying to put some boundaries, right? And some basic fundamental um, protections in place for the community. Because you have people who are out there who are bad actors. We can all agree upon that. But you also have a lot of people who you can consider collateral, people who are looky-loose, people who are, you know, your journalist, you have medical personnel, you have all manner of people. And so when we start impacting people and you have kind of this fog, right? When you got stuff getting thrown at you, you may hear gunfire and fireworks and stuff's, you know, burning. You get that fog. And some of the protections that are you see in place in this legislation, a lot of them are pretty intuitive, but now it's a legal requirement that you could find yourself on the wrong end of if you're not taking the proper precautions. And the last couple that are in this Uh, legislation that we haven't touched on yet are uh, kinetic energy projectiles and chem agents are only used at the frequency intensity in a manner that's proportional to the threat. Officers shall minimize the possible incidental impact of their use on bystanders, medical personnel, journalists, or unintended targets. An objectively reasonable effort has been made to extract individuals in distress. Medical assistance promptly provided. And if not, there should be an explanation for why we're not providing or staging medical personnel. Um, and then we shouldn't be aiming these uh, devices at the head, neck, or vital organs, and they shouldn't be used solely due to a curfew, a verbal threat, or failure to comply with a lawful order. These are tools that we use to deal with violent individuals, people who are maybe burning down a building, people who are attacking officers, maybe people who are attacking members of the public. When we use them indiscriminately, and it becomes, when we use them indiscriminately, it's unprofessional to begin with. But when it becomes high profile, that's really where we find. It's a cascading effect where we see legislation, where we see 
um, governments putting these restrictions on their individual agencies, cities, counties, et cetera. And now we're seeing it at the state level. And uh, wouldn't you agree that essentially what they're doing is they're putting rules of engagement on us? I would say they're just putting a, uh, just basic ground rules. Because again, there are some agencies that are very well trained and they execute their responsibilities professionally. And then they have other agencies that don't get the reps in, right? Or maybe they don't train regularly or they don't have a training budget. They don't know where to get training. And so they respond. The mutual aid call goes out because there's a city that's on fire, right? Or the cops are completely overwhelmed. So maybe you get 12 officers from a city school agency or you get eight officers from a university or you get six officers from an agency that maybe has 18 people. Not to look at the smaller agencies because big agencies have their issues too, but you may not have the training budget to fire off more than say two 40 millimeter rounds in training a year, you know, or to make sure that the weapon's properly zeroed or to talk about or to go through scenarios. And so now what you have is it may be a response in a city, you know, you have River City PD, right? Calls for mutual aid. And then you've got the county agency shows up and they do something completely off the rails. Now River City PD has to answer for it because they're the incident commanders. You know, so setting the statewide rules of engagement, I think they're trying to correct that issue because mutual aid is becoming more and more of a, a thing, especially recently. First of all, I think we all agree River City has had some crazy stuff happen in the last 20 years. I mean, I've seen videos since I started where River City has had crazy stuff happen. Um, you, you brought up two great points, I think, to circle back on before we drill a little deeper. One, I, I do. I see mobile fuel force demonstration response. Really, if you go back to the history of our profession, it's exactly what happened to SWAT and the Blue Ribbon Commission, right? These are low-frequency, high-risk events that the majority of our agencies have limited budgets to prepare for, and then it shows up in your town. And we, we've learned this in SWAT through Cato. You, you, some of you here work for bigger agencies. Some of you work for smaller agencies than mine. But the community doesn't care if I've only been to one HRT in my life. I'm supposed to be as good as the agency that has 3,000 officers that did eight of them last month. And we're seeing that in protest response. And the challenge in America, not to go too far into the big picture here, is how do we fund that? So you have an agency that doesn't have the budget, but the, the expectation by the legislator is I still have to prepare these people for that. And that's where we're seeing it. And what I fear is we'll, we'll lose that ability to like the way I, I, my community wants me to police in Northern California is different where some of you in Southern California police. And that's the magic of American law enforcement. That goes back to Robert Peel. So you're not going to be able to nationalize the police, like not, not in America, not, not how that works. But that's kind of a bigger picture issue that we have to deal with. But I do agree with you. It kind of goes back to that same SWAT model, right? Hey, here's some standards because we have failed to prepare our people to make great decisions and solve some of these problems. And most of this stuff isn't too unreasonable. However, they didn't provide any way to pay for this. So that's going to be the challenges for all of our agencies, big and small. How do, how do we do this? Like these, the reporting requirements alone are pretty crazy. To go back to something you said, Adam, that I wanted you guys' opinion on and how to, to as a takeaway for people who are listening. And, and I've got some ideas at my agency, but I want to hear kind of what you guys did. We look at subsection eight. Medical assistance is promptly provided if properly trained personnel are present, procured for injured persons when it's reasonable, safe to do so. 
one of the things that my agency was challenged with was what medical aid did we provide? When did we provide it? Or the real challenge was if we didn't, why didn't we? And we had really, we had some officers did a fantastic job of articulating that on their body-worn cameras. And we had other ones that didn't. And several times, uh, quite honestly, we were really by the, the grace of God, the fact the crowd didn't decide to overwhelm us, we would have been overwhelmed and overtaken. And it had nothing to do with us or our tactics. They just weren't going to do it that day. But we would be unable to render that aid, right? And so now we've done such a poor job as a profession. How are we going to articulate that and how are we going to train our folks? And we see that in SWAT, but in mobile field force, I, I, I don't think we've done as great a job, at least at least in my you know, small to medium-sized agency versus, you know, these larger metropolitan cities that some of you are from. What, what are your thoughts on that? Your metropolitan agencies get the reps in, right? So you look like an LAPD and protesting in a, in a place like Los Angeles or San Francisco or Oakland. I mean, you're talking about, you're seeing those on a regular basis. So they deal with this, but smaller agencies who don't have this or non-metropolitan agencies who don't have this on a regular basis they may not have to deal with this very often, but when it happens, again, you look at this legislation, it's not guidelines, it's essentially state law now. And that's that's a challenge. And you look at this and when you're talking about objectively reasonable and using these kind of tools, your kinetic energy weapons and your chemical agents, it has to be to bring an objectively dangerous and unlawful situation safely and effectively under control. And that's where, when we're talking about incident command, we need to be able to identify and articulate those scenarios. We need to be able to know that we can justify it after the fact. So when we're writing paper and you're writing your, your officer's reports on why you declared something in the lawful assembly, why you deployed munitions, um, why you felt it was appropriate, you know, you may find the incident commanders are writing paper and they didn't used to write paper. You know, one of the things we talked about in the prior podcast on demonstrations was having a case agent or having somebody who's documenting Everything that happens during the event, and if it's peaceful, great. You've got something for posterity. You put it in the file and you, you go 10-8. But if it goes sideways on you, then you have a running tally of everything that happened. Somebody threw a bottle here. Someone broke a window there. And now you're really describing what an objectively dangerous, unlawful situation is versus saying it was objectively dangerous, unlawful, because you can't just get away with that. It's like saying somebody's behavior was assaultive. Or somebody's behavior is life-threatening. Well, what about their behavior was life-threatening? What about their behavior was assaultive? Because there's going to be a tomorrow, and that tomorrow is going to be filled with IA complaints. It's going to be filled with lawsuits, and it's going to be filled with complaints that come in the light of 13652 under this particular piece of legislation. So again, beginning with the end in mind, if we end up getting in trouble, it's going to be because of why. We didn't take these things into consideration document appropriately, whether it's with body camera, supplemental video, um, report writing, and then making sure that we've covered all of our bases here. Because again, when things get a little bit out of control, it may not be objectively reasonable to do all the things that are listed in this particular event or in this particular piece of legislation. But we have to be able to justify that. And it's much easier to do that when we have solid documentation as the event is unfolding, why we're making the decisions that we're making, versus trying to reconstruct it two, three, four days or a week or two later. Yeah, and I think one of the things that, you know, what Marcus brought up about the medical attention and one of the models that we've looked at is actually embedding medics, almost like we do with SWAT teams, 
where we have, I mean, I've, you know, my agency's had a SWAT medic program for 20 years. I mean, we love that program. I think it's valuable, but I think we need to adapt that model to our mobile field forces, have those medics up front. They shouldn't be somewhere else. We can bring them up behind the line or, you know, close enough where they can start to provide that aid should it become necessary for us. And I think that's a super important piece that we're missing right now that would help fulfill this part of the legislation. And I don't know what you guys are doing, but it's something that we have definitely looked at, talked about, and I think is so important. What's our medical plan? I mean, we do such a, so many times I hear, hey, you know, just because the nine millimeter rounds stop spinning doesn't mean our problem's over with. We've got this whole back problem that we have to deal with and we don't in training we don't do a good job of that and that translates over into mobile field force okay so we employ these munitions we do these things how are we providing that medical attention where are our medics can we you know where's the ambulance how do we transport all those things have to be planned for and we just don't do a good job of that well and also mobile field force has often been an afterthought up until recently right swat is always has always got some sex appeal to it because everybody wants to wear pajamas and cool gear and go say they're SWAT, right? But there's not a whole lot of that when it comes to crowd control. Nobody wants to stand on a line with a baton and get yelled at and spit on. So usually it's a collateral duty that nobody wants. And people get basically voluntold, hey, congratulations, you're on the mobile field force team or you're on this deployment. So to get to your question about how we handle medical is uh, we also have a tactical med program or tac medic program. And we've asked them to start coming to our mobile field force trainings. And the primary aspect of that is for officers who get injured. So if you had an officer injured, we don't want to have a delay in them getting care. So if we have TAC medics on scene, solves that problem. We also have, if we don't have TAC medics, we will find out because a lot of our cops have prior training as a paramedic, as an EMT, as a corpsman or poor woman. Um, and we will use them basically as linebackers or as a supplemental squad so that if we do have injuries, they've got a med kit, but they also have a fire extinguisher because fires tend to be a problem. So if we have someone who throws a Molotov, someone who throws a flaming bag of whatever, we can put that fire out and we have medical on site. It may not be our full-time fire department, tactical medics. It may be just people who have prior experience to bridge that gap. And then we also train on if we have to rescue people, basically making that arrest circle, going out and rescuing somebody who may be injured uh, as a result of you know a riot pulling them behind our line or moving the line in, for, in front of that rescue team and then rendering aid. But that's gotta be a component of training. We're in this constant state of training, so many things competing for our interest and attention as cops that, you know, this was a big deal, but if we haven't had a protest or a demonstration or a riot in six months or a year, it's gonna end up collecting dust until the next thing happens, right? Then we're gonna go back and say, oh yeah, we trained on that, but it's been three, four, five years. No, and I've been, you know, all the work I did on the less lethal last year, the interest has waned. Sure. Nobody wants to talk about the face, neck, and head hits we had, you know, because it's not happening right now. Because how are we in law enforcement? We're reactive. It's, it's the next emergency. It's the next emergency. It's the next emergency. And I, nobody, right now, this isn't a big deal. It's going to be again, should it occur. And I think we just have not done a good job of training on the less lethal stuff. And look, all, all you know, uh, Spencer Fomby, a guy who used to be at, uh, at Berkeley PD. I, I, I've done a lot of work with Spencer 
as far as talking about these issues and why we're seeing all this, these face, neck and head hits. And he said, look, we've in Berkeley, Berkeley PD has never had one of these issues. And he attributes it to their level of training. And probably the amount of repetitions they get going through everything yes. they've gone through just with that, the culture in that city of protest and demonstration. So if it's something you deal with regularly, it becomes, I don't want to say a matter of routine, but it's familiar. And so you can do something by the numbers. No different than a barricade situation or a hostage rescue problem, right? You look at LAPD had something like three or four HRT problems in the course of a week. Some agencies wouldn't have one for 10, 15, 20 years, right? So those reps really do make a difference. And you also look, LAPD is another great example because you look at the May Day riots in 2007 and the after action report, you compare that after action to the after action they did on the 2020 issues that they ran into and so many overlapping issues, right? You know, history repeats itself. And the one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. It was a big deal back in 2007, 2008. Commands change, priorities change. Maybe we don't see the same riot issues that we saw. And now 2015, 16, 17, all the way through this last year, everything old is new again. Tie both of those points together. I think it's important that we don't lose sight of the fact if these tools are legislated away from us, uh, we go back to the 60s where we're in skirmish lines with just batons. And the images of uh, those events uh, have left deep scars and we will be left without other alternatives. And so where do we go if we can't uh, improve and more professionally uh, deploy the tools that we have available to us under these circumstances now? This is really a leadership problem. You look at what the legislature is saying here, and a lot of it goes back to leadership and making sure there's proper training, leadership and proper decision-making at the command level. And then even, and there's a particular section, I don't know where it is in here, but it says specifically if the chemical agent to be deployed as tear gas, only a commanding officer at the scene of the assembly protest or demonstration may authorize the use of tear gas. Because they're saying, you know, officers have the ability to defend themselves. That's all codified in law and in case law. But in dispersing a crowd, that's specifically what we're talking about here, in dispersing a crowd, the decision shouldn't be made by someone necessarily at the very front of the line, but someone who maybe has a little more experience, a clearer view, an idea of the legal ramifications of the decision-making process. While it may seem like a good idea to deploy gas to the operator on the front line, the person who's seeing the bigger picture in an incident command post may say, no, it's going to cause these other complications. It's going to actually exacerbate our problem rather than resolve our problem. Now, I'm not saying that's right, wrong, or indifferent, but this is what the legislature is looking at as far as decision-making and responsibility. And so really it falls on lieutenants, captains, commanders, and above to make sure the training is there, to make sure that people at the ground level are making good decisions, and to make sure that they are engaged and that they as commanders are well-versed in this stuff. Because ultimately it's going to be them making the decisions and putting their cops in a position to fail or to succeed. So you guys are bringing up a lot of great points as far as uh, as training and some of the command decisions made to deploy chemical agents. And um, mobile field force is definitely a specialty similar to SWAT is. So do you guys think that some kind of training should be incorporated to all line level officers, um, incident commanders, watch commanders as far as handling crowd control situations? Because I know for most agencies, uh, especially smaller ones, that's that's not really a base course of training for any incident commander, even a, a line level officer that's coming into um, off training out in a patrol. So I, I know that um, 
you know, some agencies have run into uh, pushback uh, from the unions uh, and from, from, you know, the line level personnel that uh, it is a specialized um, job duty and that not everybody should have to go through FEMA's uh, mobile field for a school to be able to, to be a police officer. I mean, if that was the case, it would be incorporated to the, into the basic uh, police academy. We would all have mobile field force training uh, at that level. And so those battles are being uh, fought in different locations. And I think it's uh, kind of agency specific, but it, it goes back to culture and leadership and uh, what the expectation is um, for the community, like how you're going to serve your community. Yeah, I think for me, the, if you're talking about the training aspect, we have to focus a lot of that effort at the command level. I think all of the stuff that Adam said about leadership is absolutely the issue. The stuff that I've reviewed, the stuff that I've been involved in, if you don't have a strong incident commander, if you don't have strong team leaders, you are going to have problems that you wouldn't have otherwise. And if you have an incident commander who doesn't have, who doesn't understand about decision-making authority and talking to his team leaders and all of those things, and it goes back to tactical science, it goes back to understanding the concepts and the principles studying these things. I mean, look, I can tell you that I would not have known what to do when this stuff hit my jurisdiction had I not studied them, had I not talked to guys like Sid and Odie who were like, hey, here's what you do when this happens. And I just did it. There's not a lot of people like that out there. And you want to know why we ran into so many issues? It's it's 90% is a leadership problem. And the training, I don't think we can afford not to be training our folks. You know, we put together a mobile field force team. We have several in our agency, but we put together one. And one of the things that we did is we put everybody through the 10 hour, the 12 hour post class on mobile field force. So that way, if there is a lawsuit, if there is something that happens, one, it's good training for the cops. But again, beginning with the end in mind, knowing we're going to get sued when they say, what kind of training do you put your people through? Well, you know, it's an hour after lineup. You know, we walk around, we march around with batons. Is a far cry from we put them through a 12-hour post-class every 18 months. Um, can your agency afford that? I, I mean, not to sound snarky. I don't know if we can afford not to in this current environment. You know, do you pay a little training cost up front on the prevention side or are we paying out lawyer fees and everything on the back end because failure to train, failure to supervise, failure to act. And I think that's what we're seeing now is we had this real dynamic situation that happened after the George Floyd situation. And now we're going through this reckoning with the legislature, with court proceedings, with, um, you know, civil proceedings. And, you know, that's something that we need to look at and understand it's a leadership challenge. And for people who don't get the reps in, you know, there are people who paid a pretty high price going through their events and they wrote about it. You look at these after action reports from all over the country, from La Mesa and San Diego County, Baltimore, New York, Oakland, San Jose, and you see what worked and what didn't. And there's a lot of similar themes. And so you can essentially, as a commander, get the reps by reading somebody else's story. And then if you can attend trainings, that's even better. But there's there are ways to do this, but we have to take it upon ourselves to say we need to get good at this, or at least be familiar enough to make those decisions because it is like a SWAT problem where anybody who's watched a well-oiled SWAT mission, you have your team leader on say a react element or whatever, but then you also have, you know, your mission leader, you have your XOCO, however your team is organized. And that communication is 
seamless. Everybody knows everybody's capabilities. Everybody knows what the protocols are. Everybody knows what the mission is. Um, that's not always the case with mobile field force. And unfortunately, it, the reason I think it's a command issue is cops know how to push someone with a baton. Cops know how to tell someone to get back. Cops know how to grab somebody, pull them behind the line and arrest them. Where's the gap? Commanders, right? Do commanders know when it's time to call on lawful assembly? Do commanders know when it's time to deploy munitions? And I think that's really that gray area that we don't train on. And so we're stuck making it up as we go. And then we end up being held to account like, yeah, we could have done that better. Well, I think it goes back to, it's just like a critical incident. Who, who's working right now? We're, these are come as you are parties. We're showing up with whoever's on duty with whatever tools are available. And those aren't always our A players. Right. And so the one thing that I realized during these riots, talking to those that were involved is it wasn't always our A players that were showing up that were the incident commanders. Right. And that caused us so many issues that were not like most of us were studying this stuff because I don't want to be the guy that they're writing the after action reports about. I want to manage these incidents to the best of my ability to maintain that legitimacy with the community. And I think that's just, it's just lost. And, it, and it's, and it's, but it's an individual responsibility, right? Since we have people listening to us rambling on and on about protests and demonstrations and everything, it's really, it's an individual responsibility for someone to choose whether or not they're going to try and get good at this, or if they're not fluent in it, at least get around in places where it's spoken, because it could be your day to have duty. And the next thing you know, you're an incident commander or you're a mobile field force commander. Um, when I started doing this, this was not a specialty of mine. I got thrown saying, hey, guess what? You're running this thing. And I had a couple of days to prepare. So you read after action reports, you read your tactical science stuff, and you try and just have a working knowledge of the basics, calling people to know what they're doing, and you learn as you go. Even if you just read those after actions and review the basics, you're going to be 10 steps ahead of someone who just shows up and is like, eh, we'll figure it out. It'll be fine. Cross your fingers, policing, right? Roll the dice and hopefully it works out until the time it doesn't. There's no SWAT element would show up saying, well, you know, we'll figure it out, you know, see how it goes. Yeah, I agree. Go ahead. Yeah, I agree with everything you guys are saying. I know it's um, in somewhat of a comparison. I know like in the SWAT realm, we used to have SWAT operators and then negotiators as a separate entity. And now a lot of SWAT teams are going to sending operators to basic negotiation school because administrations realize that these SWAT officers are going to be that first contact with the person. It's, and it's almost the same parity with training line level officers and command staff in mobile field force operations because uh, in some of the smaller agencies uh, we've gotten these protests and for the patrol officers this is their first exposure to it because mm -hmm. it's looked at as a specialty and as you guys have seen in some of the bigger metropolitan areas that's usually where it goes sideways with the inexperience when you get some kind of experience there hopefully it settles it down um, but i agree with everything you guys are saying i think we need to expand the training and make sure everyone at least touches this at some point. So the first time they're exposed to it is not at zero hour when it's happening. If you want to learn more, jump on and read the post guidelines, the crowd management intervention and control published in 2021. Um, you can't go wrong uh, listening to our first podcast uh, with Adam talking about some demonstration response concepts, things to consider. We're developing a course now that uh, should come out shortly so that uh, we can kind of keep building on this response. Uh, 
learn from the after action reports that are published from uh, various cities throughout California and the country and read, read and study the law, AB 48. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.